You're listening to Preservation Destination, the podcast where we explore the history of the built environment. Whether you are a preservation pro, dabbler, or just into fascinating history, you are in the right place. Join our host, Taylor Volz, as she interviews experts in the field of preservation as they pass their knowledge on to us. And here is your host of Preservation Destination, Taylor Volz. Welcome to this week's episode of Preservation Destination. Today, my guest is Nina Skall, the Tennessee Wars Commission Program Director. Welcome, Nina. Hi, Taylor. Thanks for having me. Sure. Please tell us a little bit about yourself and what it is that you do. Okay. I'm originally from Washington, D.C., and I received my Bachelor's of Arts from the University of Maryland, which is where this whole journey began. I actually started out thinking I would be a classical archaeologist, I have a deep love of ancient Roman history. I think it's because I'm half Italian, and I mean, who doesn't like Italian food? <laughs> so my first field school was located in San Gemini, Italy. The site's called Carceli, and it's really exciting because it's an ancient Roman bath that was dedicated to women's health, and that's really rare from that time period. People would flock to that bath to soak up the healing waters. The natural spring is really high in calcium, and so they believe that there was a lot of healing properties there. And to this day, it was one of the most fascinating expeditions I've been on. But when I came back from Italy, I realized I don't live in Italy, and that was <laughs> right. not realistic at this time. So I shifted to historical and plantation archaeology, and I was pretty much hooked ever since. I had the pleasure of working at James Madison's Montpelier, pursuing my academic interest in American slavery and the African diaspora. I've also been employed with various archaeological and engineering firms, and I was focusing on cultural resource management. This type of archaeology helps to mitigate our historic past with development of our future, and this is required by law whenever federal funding is involved. For the last six years, I've been living on Long Island in New York, and I've been doing CRM work, and I've been working for a nonprofit called Preservation Long Island. They service Brooklyn, Queens, and all of Long Island, and they further historic preservation through advocacy, education, and stewardship. And I did this all while completing my master's. And I just graduated in May from the Savannah College of Art and Design. And just a few weeks later, (laughs) I went ahead and moved to Tennessee to accept this position with the Tennessee Historical Commission. Um, So I've been here just a few months, and it's been exciting, and I've learned a lot, and I still have a lot more to learn. So you kind of touched a little bit on my next question, what your education is. So you have a Bachelor of Arts in Anthropology with a focus in Archaeology and then a Master of Arts in Historic Preservation from SCAD. And you said you did the SCAD program online. I did. I was in New York, and I wasn't ready to move, and I wasn't ready to go to the schools in the city that cost tens of thousands of dollars more to get Mm -hmm. this same education. And SCAD has a uh, great reputation. And I just went for it. You need a lot of self-discipline if you're going to do a master's program online. That is a huge recommendation and a huge um, red flag, I would say, to anybody that's thinking about going back to school. You really got to be honest with yourself if you're going to do that kind of a program. Mm -hmm. I had a previous guest that did the program, but she, she actually was on campus. And so I guess it's a little bit of a different, you know the atmosphere feeling, I guess. It is. And, you know, when you are able to do it on campus, it's great because you can get the MFA, and that is a year longer. So I believe it's a three-year program, but you get a lot more of hands-on preservation. You're physically going to buildings and, you know, scraping paint off and doing things like that or cemetery preservation, and you're doing the treatment of the stones and things like that. 
we had a class where we did a lot of what I like to call science projects. Mm -hmm. So we were able to do some of these things from home. Um, You know, we had to get historic bricks and look at how water permeated the bricks and things like that. So that was really, I love science. So that was really, really fun for me. I I would say that that was probably my favorite class that Mm -hmm. I took at SCAD. Mm -hmm. It sounds a lot like the archaeology stuff that you were doing. (laughs) Yes, I have a big science brain and that's part of what really led me into archaeology. Before any of this, um, I used to be a veterinary technician. So again, with the science. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So I don't know. I'm just... It's a big old nerd. Yeah. Well, I, I was really interested when I was an undergrad. I was really interested in archaeology, too. And uh, I, I have to say it was the science that really kept me from it because I, I am not a science brain. That's interesting. And, yeah. uh, and I, I did take a class, a, a summer class, where we did some work at a Civil War battlefield in Georgia. And it was fascinating and super interesting, but I just was like, I don't think I have the brain to like do more of this. And there's so much patience that is required. Mm-hmm. It's especially when you're not finding things. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it's just at that point, a little bit of manual labor, but that's okay. Because if it were easy, everybody would do it. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and don't don't run the uh, metal detector over your steel-toed shoes because... Oh, yeah. That's good food for thought. <laughs> I may have done that a couple of times and been like, oh, there's something. Oh, no, wait. That's just my shoe. <laughs> Never mind. I love it. <laughs> I love it. So um, can you walk us through your process from going from archaeology to preservation? That is a really, really good question. And I'm not sure that I went from one to the other. I kind of see archaeology and historic preservations as intertwined, interrelated fields. Although archaeology, you know, we always like to say archaeology is technically destruction, because it is. The artifacts and the data that are collected enrich our understanding as to how people lived and worked in the past. It also helps us to understand the cultural landscape during a specific period by examining the remainder of the built environment, whereas historic preservation often uses the similar data that archaeologists use to help preserve and interpret historic structures and to conserve historically important landscapes. So I felt that it was important to understand the built environment from above and below ground, and that has really helped to push me to the historic preservation point that I'm at now. I feel that these two disciplines are two puzzle pieces from the same puzzle, and when you put them together, a more complete picture of history and the cultural environment emerges. I also want to say that my internships were instrumental in developing this career path. During my undergrad, I had the pleasure of interning with the D.C. Historic Preservation Office under the supervision of the city archaeologist, Dr. Ruth Tricoli. She um, has been a great mentor and taught me much, much about how that all works. So here I was able to get a lot of practical experience with archaeology in the Section 106 process. I reviewed archaeological reports and helped with mitigations. And I learned how to use GIS, which is instrumental in so many things we do as archaeologists and as historic preservationists. Mm -hmm. It's really a fantastic medium. And um, when I was doing my master's, I was in New York, and I mentioned that I worked for Preservation Long Island, but I was an intern with them for a year before I got hired. Okay. They work really hard to raise awareness and support for the protection of our shared past through historic site interpretation, the curation of art and material culture, the creation of museum exhibits, publications, as well as providing support and technical assistance to individuals and communities engaging in historic preservation. They're a really small organization. I mean, I'm talking they've got a staff of 
with me, like seven. Okay. And that's a huge amount of ground to cover. Mm -hmm. um, so it's, it's really impressive to see how large of an area they work in in a constantly changing city. And it's just impressive to see how much they've accomplished preservation-wise. So you touched on this a little bit, but I, I want to ask you to expand a little bit more about how, how you see the two fields of archaeology and preservation overlapping and working together. Well, historic preservation works to preserve, conserve, and protect building sites, objects, and landscapes of historical significance. Oftentimes, what follows is the interpretation of these locations. Archaeology is the study of human activity and the analysis of past cultures through the examination of material culture. And I'm being, you know, pretty broad with this because mm -hmm. there are so many different types of archaeology and there are so many different types of, you know, historic preservation. It's not just one, mm -hmm. one way. So this is done through the process of historic research, survey, excavation, and data analysis. So without the latter, the former has the potential to produce an incomplete picture of history. But I want to clarify what I mean by this. It doesn't mean that every time we do any historic preservation, we do archaeology. It just means that they work along parallel lines, and archaeology frequently aids in the historic preservation process. Additionally, the overarching goals of both historic preservation and archaeology are similar, which is to discover our past, to accurately interpret our history, and to ensure that the locations and material culture remain present to tell the story of our heritage for generations to come. And the reason why we are so successful today in all of this, I mean, it, it all goes back to the National Historic Preservation Act of 1966, which created a nationwide historic preservation strategy through the development of several institutions, such as the Advisory Council for Historic Preservation, State Historic Preservation Offices, which is where I work, the National Register, the Section 106 process. So without those things, I don't know if we'd be where we are today with archaeology and preservation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I would agree on all the points that you just made, definitely. <laughs> and I, I hear about uh, projects, um, especially ones that get like uh, government funding or even FEMA projects where where I'm at, where they require the archaeology portion of it first before they do any of the work. Like um, there, one of my previous guests, uh, James, he works uh, for the school district in, the, in New Orleans, and they were restoring an old schoolhouse and bringing it back to life and they wanted to build an extension on the side of it ah. and it was easy they were like they had the plans it was going to be in kind with the rest of the building but part of the funding requirements was to do the archaeology dig in that space next to the building just to make sure that they weren't covering up something else with the new construction absolutely and they were able to find some neat stuff that way the section 106 process to me is instrumental, especially because there's so much development in our country. We are a society that is changing and moving forward at all the times, and, and that's great. But if we just focus on the future, we're going to lose important parts of the past. So it's important to do those surveys, do those shovel test pits, and, and check out what's there and document it. I mean, you can still maybe put things on top of the site depending on how deep you have to dig down to put the structure you know we sometimes just need to note that they're there sometimes we need to do mitigation and tweak the design or move the structure to a certain degree to accommodate a particular feature or site so I think 
it's instrumental that we kind of pause before we just start digging. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in New Orleans, you, you, you never know. You, you sneeze you... and you're on something. <laughs> right. Right. And bodies and, um, you know, all kinds of stuff down there. It's it's crazy. And then if you dig a little deeper, you just get into the water. So <laughs> <laughs> yeah, That's so true. Yeah. Here we've got a really strong uh, Native American component. Mm-hmm. So that's something that is always on the back of my mind as we're talking about archaeology when we're doing things in relation to like battlefield protection and stuff like that. And that's not – that's a little bit out of the purview of the archaeology that I do. So um, it's been really interesting and instrumental for me here. I've been in contact with our state archaeologist, you know, to brush up on some of that. If you, if you don't use it, you lose it. And it's important, you know, being new to a new state, the archaeology here is different than the archaeology by me where I used to live in New York versus mm-hmm. where I grew up in D.C. So it's important to kind of, again, pause, listen, learn when you're digging. Mm-hmm. So would you say that your work at Montpelier influenced your decision to pursue a preservation degree? I would say no. When I went back for my undergraduate, I took some time and worked. And I, because I wasn't sure what I really wanted to be when I grew up. <laughs> and yeah. I didn't want to waste money on college credits. It's quite expensive. So when I went back to become an archaeologist, I really did... I don't know, let's say a seven-year plan, not a five-year plan. Mm -hmm. I really did a little bit more mapping out. So when my mentor, Dr. Mary Furlong-Minkoff, graduated with her PhD and moved on to be head of curation at Montpelier, I, of course, jumped at the opportunity to follow her and kind of expand upon some of my interests. So when when I went, I knew I was going to do the program. I didn't know exactly where I was going to go. But what Montpelier did do for me is it absolutely strengthened my academic archaeological skills because academic archaeology and cultural resource management archaeology are very different. Okay. In cultural resource management archaeology, time is money and you are digging and you're actually hoping you don't find anything because you don't want to stop the project. You want the project to continue. It is the opposite for me in academic archaeology. I want to find things and expand on my you know, hypothesis and my research goals and things like that. So it was important that I kind of brush up on those type of archaeological skills. And it also fortified my passion to uncover and disseminate an accurate and inclusive picture of American history. To me, this means deconstructing the current white-centric and biased narrative of American history and discussing honestly and openly the African-American story, But I want to clarify, that's where my academic interests lie. But this is a process that should in no way, shape, or form be limited to African Americans. It needs to include the stories of all Americans, Native Americans, women, immigrants. So, which again is a little bit outside of my purview, but it's important to really mention that. Yeah, uh, that those types of topics um, have been coming up a lot more recently in the interviews that I've been doing, and I'm really glad to be able to cover those types of things. Absolutely. It's very important. And what you're doing is instrumental because the more we talk about these things, the more people are going to hear about them, the more the discussion is going to be happening, the closer and faster we'll be to really deconstructing that one-sided narrative. Mm-hmm. So speaking of, this kind of goes along with that a little bit. I wanted to ask you about the master's thesis that you wrote when when you were doing your schoolwork at SCAD on historic site interpretation as it relates to slavery at three different Virginia plantation homes. What inspired you to write about that topic? 
Well, just to put it out there, I compared historic preservation um, and historic site interpretation at Mount Vernon, Monticello, and Montpelier. They're all relatively close to each other in distance, which was nice. So anyway, so my love of history was instrumental in this mission. I mean, it, it really, I really, <laughs> I hate to say it, but I'm going to, it made me want to dig deeper. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I like, I had to. I'm I sorry. like a good pun. Right. <laughs> it was so necessary. So what really kind of started this is I started to notice as I was going through, you know, reflecting on my schooling all the way back, you know, to childhood you know, as I'm touring different museums and historic sites throughout the country, not just Virginia, but, you know, I, as I mentioned to you earlier, I have a strong love with New Orleans and um, I've been there several times. Every time I go, I go and look at the plantations and I am, of course, assessing in my own mind the historic mm-hmm. preservation there. And, you know, I've done this in Georgia and anyway. So I started to see consistent gaps or areas that were either glossed over or spaces where history was let's say sugar-coated and in some instances and in a lot of instances the african-american story was hushed and even worse off some places it was silenced altogether mm-hmm. um so what we were missing was a more in-depth and honest discussion about the foundation of this nation Um, Having an inclusive and thus complete picture of American history will not only validate these missing stories, but it will also enrich our understanding of the foundation of this nation, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Winston Churchill said, those that fail to learn from history are doomed to repeat it. Well, that really kind of inspired me. How can we learn from history if we're not really openly and honestly discussing it? Right. And that, that was a real problem. So that was kind of first. Second... My father was a civil rights lawyer during the heyday of the civil rights movement, and his stories of struggle and strength were truly inspiring. And, you know, coupled that with his determination to facilitate change to better the world, that inspired me to do the same thing. And as an archaeologist, we have a responsibility to accurately disseminate the information we glean from sites and from the material culture we uncover. And as historic preservationists, we have an obligation to honestly and correctly interpret sites, structures, and landscapes. Museums and historic sites have the same type of responsibility. Generally, museums and historic sites are thought of by the public as reliable sources of knowledge, and these institutions thus are going to be held to the same standards, I think. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to then examine three sites that were considered historically impressive, that were widely visited and well-known by the public, that had a direct correlation to our founders and the development of the fledgling nation, And I wanted to investigate sites that were deeply rooted in slavery and sites that had significant historical documentation as well as the funds to properly examine their own history and depth. I wanted to research how that information was being presented to the public and I wanted to assess if they were telling the whole story as well as to analyze what institutions were the most inclusive, accurate, and honest. I don't know that I should say who did what, but I'm gonna. <laughs> okay. So I believe that Montpelier took it to a whole new level. I encourage everybody to go on their website and if you're in the area to go and view the Mere Distinction of Color exhibit. Um, the verbiage that they use is shocking. And what I mean by that is it's good. Okay. We're calling it like it is. We're saying words like bondage and rape mm-hmm. and torture and torment and things like that 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 is what slavery 
was. That's what slavery is. And it's important that we call it like we see it. So I, like I said, I strongly encourage everybody to check out their website. And I think the biggest reason why they're the most successful is their strong ties to the descendant community mm-hmm. and their definition of descendant. Each site defined descendant differently. And each site worked with the descendant community to a different level. Montpelier has the most involvement. And their definition of descendant is the most broad. It doesn't mean those that descended just from the slaves at that particular site or those that descended from the Madisons. Slavery and families did not have borders of plantations. Right. You know, families extended over large periods of space. You know, they people walked miles and miles and miles to see their loved ones. And so I think it was really important for Montpelier to, again, be as inclusive as possible. They also include people that feel connected to the site as part of the descendant community. And they value their opinions. Their opinions are involved in most decisions that they make you know, anything from where to dig, how to dig, how they handle the mere distinction of color exhibit in terms of curation, and the verbiage that they used. So I believe that that was really what kind of separated them from the rest. Okay. It's good to hear that they take into consideration those things. Absolutely. What the community is asking for and and telling them what they want to see. Because sometimes you, you don't see that. And, or maybe... You get somebody in there that's like, this is my idea of how I want to interpret it. And uh, other things get lost for whatever, a myriad of reasons. And I think I think you're right. It's important for sites to communicate with the community and, and serve what they need, what the community needs. And, you know, it helps Montpelier additionally and other historic sites if they choose to do this because – a huge portion of what is missing from the historical record are the personal stories. Mm-hmm. Slavery was unique for every single person. It's not like, oh, well, you were a slave and we all had the same experience. Absolutely not. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, hearing those stories, the oral tradition, the things that have been passed down from generation to generation helps to enrich and explain sometimes some of those things that they didn't have answers to. And that you're not going to find in James Madison's meticulous records. Right. You know, and things that you wouldn't find necessarily in the archaeological record either. So that's, I think that's really important. It's another component um, of historical research that needs to be more strongly valued. Mm-hmm. Well, I will make sure to put the links to all of this stuff um, when I post the information for this episode so people can go find it and look through what that's you're talking fantastic. about. All that oh, stuff. I think that'll be great. Okay. Did your thesis research influence your decision to apply for your current position? Absolutely. I wanted to continue to facilitate creating a more complete and accurate picture of American history. I saw this as a perfect opportunity for me to help facilitate change and to broaden our current historical narrative. Adding additional perspectives, as I mentioned earlier, only enriches our knowledge of American history. So I think more is better in this case. And additional contributing factors include my general love of history, which I just can't stop saying because it's just so true. Um, And I I got that from both my parents, but especially my father, who has a deep passion for the Civil War and World War II. 
as a child, our family trips often incorporated some sort of historic site visit or, you know, trip to a battlefield, unless we were at the beach and then that was, right. you know. But <laughs> but most of the time it was, you know, we're also there to learn and, and that's an opportunity that we have every day. Mm-hmm. I love that idea. I always try to sneak that in, even if that's not what we're doing or you know, where we're going somewhere for, I always try to sneak stuff in like that. Absolutely. Like, I'm like <laughs> driving by today, we're driving by the exit and it was like Frank Lloyd Wright house. I was like, what? Yeah, exactly. Like, we can't stop today, but we're stopping there on the way back. And like, that's absolutely <laughs> a place to stop for sure. He is amazing. His, his work was fantastic. Okay, so let's talk about what you're doing now. So currently you work as the director of programs for the Tennessee Wars Commission, which is a state program under the Tennessee Historical Commission. There were a lot of words when I was looking at this on the internet and trying to figure out how it's It's very, very wordy. I'm administratively attached to the um, Historical Commission. Uh, as much as I'm like my own entity, I'm still under under their purview. I mean, I answer to... The Shippo, basically, you know, and you had the pleasure of meeting him. He's fantastic and extremely passionate about this program. Mm-hmm. And so, like you said, this is a relatively new position that you're in. And um, so can you just talk about what the Tennessee Wars Commission is and what it is that you do in the role? Absolutely. Okay. In this unique position as director of programs, I work to preserve Tennessee's military heritage by coordinating the planning, preservation, and promotion of structures, building building sites, and battlefields, and by acquiring or providing funds for the acquisition of battlefields, cemeteries, and other historic sites associated with the French and Indian War, the Revolutionary War, War of 1812, Mexican-American War, and the Civil War. This mission is partially realized through the management of two grant funds. So the Tennessee Wars Commission itself was created through legislation in 1994. It's as it's not as old as, as some people think it is because of all the words that are involved in right. the title. So originally the Wars Commission held one small grant fund known as the Wars Commission Grant Fund, and that focused on all the previously mentioned conflicts. However, in 2013, the legislation was expanded, as well as the budget, woohoo, <laughs> um, to create the Civil War Sites Preservation Fund. And that's designed to exclusively purchase, preserve, and restore Civil War battlefields. Additionally, the same act expanded the purview of the Wars Commission to include the preservation of Underground Railroad sites eligible for listing on the National Register or eligible for listing as a National Historic Landmark, broadening the interpretation of our tumultuous past. In addition to our grant funds, this preservation mission is realized by the donation of conservation easements on historic battlegrounds by providing preservation advocacy, education, and community support. So just to tell you a little bit about the grant funds, because that's a huge part of what we do. So the first one, as I mentioned, was the Wars Commission Grant Fund. And that has the opportunity to fund all sorts of projects, such as archaeological surveys and excavations, cemetery preservation, monument and memorial preservation, um, the creation of interpretive panels and graphic displays, historic markers, living history and educational programs. And what I love about this one is that it allows anybody, any individual, museum, educational institution, private organization, or local government body to apply. Of the two grants, this one's more flexible and allowing for the most preservation creativity. 
Um, this past fiscal year was great for this grant fund. We awarded $115,610 to four successful applicants. The projects included living history programs and interpretive panels at the Alvin C. York State Historic Park, interpretive panels and graphic displays for the Carter House Visitor Center at the Battle of Franklin, replica Civil War artillery for both Parker's Crossroads Battlefield and Johnsonville State Historic Park. So that was really great. We were able to do some really fun things with that and that Mm -hmm. are going to make some really interesting visual impacts on the historic preservation in Tennessee. Now, the other fund, the Civil War Sites Preservation Fund, that's the exclusive one just for the acquisition and preservation of the Civil War battlefields and underground railroad sites. The rules are more stringent with this one. This requires a one-to-one match from a non-state source. Applicants must be a 501c3. And here's the kicker. Eligible sites must be associated with the 38 most significant Civil War battlefields as designed by the, excuse me, as defined by the National Park Service or be eligible okay. for listing for the railroad sites. Um, since its conception in 2013, this grant fund has successfully preserved over 900 acres of battlefield lands throughout the state. Wow. Uh, yeah, isn't that exciting? That's huge. And this fiscal year alone, we dispensed $3,163,035 in grant funds and preserved approximately 223 acres of hallow ground located at or near the chattanooga Wahatchee Battlefield, the Franklin Battlefield, the Jackson-Salem Cemetery Battlefield, the Shiloh Battlefield, and the Stones River Battlefield. So that was this past fiscal year. The grant fund, that grant fund opens up this August 15th. So that's right around the corner. So I can't wait to see what sites are going to be applying this year. I have no idea what projects are going to be coming in. And for the Wars Commission Grant Fund, that grant cycle opens September 1st. And I encourage anybody to apply. I would love to see some creativity this year. And I'd like to see some new sites that we haven't been able to fund, um, you know, spread the wealth a little bit, Mm -hmm. spread the preservation wealth. (laughs) We've got one ongoing project that has been going since 2011. And this one's exciting because it's called Camp Blunt, which is a War of 1812 muster site. And so in 2011, the whole goal was to acquire this track of land and preserve the approximate 39 acres along the Elk River in Fayetteville. Excuse me. Here, um, just a touch of history, General Andrew Jackson mustered the militia and the Tennessee Volunteer Forces, readying them for the battle against the Red Stick Creek Native Americans who were fighting for the British at that time. This encampment is really important to the state and to national history, as it's only one of nine War of 1812 sites in Tennessee. Today, the state finally owns a site, woohoo, and the Historical Commission, we hold the conservation easement protecting the land in perpetuity. And next week, we've got some movement on this project. Next week, Patrick McIntyre, the SHPO, and I will be attending the groundbreaking. So we're going to be officially kicking off phase one of construction. And when complete, this site will be part of Tennessee's Greenway, which features interconnecting walking trails. It's going to have a huge visitor center and museum, a pavilion with interpretive panels, restrooms, and the Greer Cabin, which is a pioneer era cabin. Additionally, there'll be space for living history programs and reenactments when the whole thing is said and done. It'll be a really unique addition to our um, historic preservation in the state of Tennessee. So it's going to be, again, a multi-year project and multi-million dollar project, but um, one foot in front of the other, and next week we are starting. So we're very excited about this. When you say next week, what's the date going to be? 
We are going to be going on uh, Friday, August 16th. August 16th. Yeah. Okay. So I'm really excited to stay tuned. Perfect. (laughs) Perfect. Yeah, that sounds, all of this sounds amazing. So the grant projects in, in the position that you're in, are you the one receiving the applications and making those decisions? Yeah, so I am receiving the applications. All applications come in when the cycle closes. We'll, we will review them all at once. And by we, I mean um, it's a panel of three of us. Okay. So two historical commission members and myself. They're going to be scored and ranked, and the highest scoring will be the ones chosen. And it really just depends on how much money people are asking for, what the projects are. So there are a lot of variables. Um, and this will be my first time approving any of these grants, so I'll definitely be taking a nod from the other two that mm-hmm. have been here for a little bit. So it's going to be exciting to kind of see um, the process in motion. Okay, that sounds good. Well, I'll put uh, when we're done or whenever you have time. If is there a link, or will those yes that I can put up absolutely. for people? Absolutely. Yeah, okay. I will give you a link to both my website, the Tennessee Wars Commission. And a link to where you can start to fill out your application. Perfect. Perfect. <laughs> okay. Do you know if any other states have a wars commission similar to what Tennessee is doing? You know, and I, I, I had to ask Patrick McIntyre, the ship, but I wasn't sure. And here's what I kind of did. I did a little bit of research on my own after this. So he said no. He said we are the only ones um, that have such a position. But also rightly so, because during the Civil War, approximately 2,900 military engagements occurred on Tennessee soil, second only to Virginia, making Tennessee home to some of the bloodiest battles of the war, giving the state really the need for such a thing. Mm-hmm. So that that was my little tidbit I got for you. Okay. Yeah, because I, I know, you know, when I was looking up the your information and I was looking on the website and doing my research... I was like, I've never heard of anything like this before. And I didn't realize that um, that Tennessee had this type of program. And I'd be curious to find out if Virginia or Georgia would be interested in, you know, starting something similar. You know, I, know. I would too. And I know, I mean, Virginia is, <clears throat> excuse me, fantastic. They have so much Civil War support that I'm surprised that they don't have this. And if if somebody out there finds out this is a thing, please let me know because <laughs> <laughs> um, I would love to tell Patrick and I would love to talk to their program director as well to see how they're doing things mm-hmm. and what is working for them and what isn't kind of a thing. But we work with the Civil War Trails Project. We work with the American Battlefield Protection Program, which is an MPS thing. We work with the American Battlefield Trust to help get these grants off the ground and to preserve as much um, battlefield as property as as possible. It's really one of those things, and I'll mention this later. In my mind, preservation is one of those things like where it it takes a village. Oh yeah, and so it's it's nice to have support from Virginia. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I think we are down to my favorite question that I like to ask people because I like to hear what their answers are. But what is your favorite thing about preservation? Okay, and I actually read this to Patrick right before you came in because I actually got really excited about this when I was writing this. So, and it took me a minute to think. I really had to stop and think about this one more so than some of the other questions because I really just kind of kept it to to like two. (laughs) So... My absolute favorite thing about preservation is that it's tangible. 
It has the power to invoke a feeling and association within and connect the visitor to the past. When you enter a historic site or walk a preserved cultural landscape, preserved battlefield, it has the potential to transport the visitor back in time. It allows you to walk in the footsteps of everyday people or influential figures. It allows you to see how things once were and imagine what life was like then. Preservation is amazing and that you can use almost all your senses to understand a historic location, sight, sound, smell, and touch. And if you're an archaeologist, taste. <laughs> the archaeologists out there will understand that one. The other thing that I love is that preservation is such a positive device that has such a lasting effect enriching our nation for generations to come. It also is economically positive, assisting our present. Heritage tourism and cultural tourism are big buck industries. And increasing the visibility of historic sites in need helps to bring awareness and it illuminates the need for preservation efforts, which allows us to then preserve more sites. And then you kind of get that ball rolling down the hill and you get this spiral thing going on so I think that's fantastic and as I mentioned earlier preservation of our nation's history it's a responsibility of all of us this is not just somebody that works in a historic preservation office or somebody that's a part of a you know historical association or society it's something that anybody can be involved in it's accessible to everybody and as I mentioned just a minute ago it takes a village and it's really really true mm-hmm I think so, too. I think it, it those community connections that you make, whether locally or working with the National Park Service or other like other organizations, that that can only increase what you're able to do and all the things that you're able to accomplish. So and I think awareness, you know, when I say anybody can do it, if you see a building in need or a site in need, Contact your state historic preservation office. Take that first step. Make us aware of it. You know, we can't be everywhere at all times, and we can't see everything that potentially needs our help. Mm-hmm. So we're, we need, you know, men on the ground. We need people bringing this to our attention and people willing to help us and, and have us help them to lead the charge in preservation efforts. So I encourage everybody, if you see something that is tugging at your heartstrings, that is falling apart, you be the first one to reach out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because the 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 local groups and the shippos are always willing to. That's what we're here for. Yeah, <laughs> that's what we're here for. And you know, it, it's not necessarily going to be me unless it's some sort of something related to war, right? <laughs> but feel free to contact me, and I will put you in touch with the right person. Mm-hmm. Do you have any advice for uh, someone looking to get into preservation? I sure do. (laughs) (laughs) I sure do. So the first thing I'm going to say is if you're looking to get rich, this isn't for you. Yes, that's correct. This has to be something (laughs) that you love and that you're passionate about because for the most part, you ain't going to be seeing really big paychecks. But the rewards are inevitable. Like they're – it's – they can't even describe them. It's, It's really amazing. Additionally, this field requires dedication. You're going to need an advanced degree. A bachelor's isn't going to cut it. So after you complete that bachelor's in a related field or in historic preservation itself, choose your next step wisely and assess how far you need to go. Some things you're going to need a PhD for. Some things a master's. And to be honest here, many of us have multiple advanced degrees. That's really something to keep in mind. I'm currently looking to go back to school. I just graduated in May. What I'm like a glutton for punishment. <laughs> I don't know what's wrong with me. So I'm looking to go back to school for an additional master's in archaeology. Mm-hmm. You know, it's I, – I can't just stop learning. 
you know, it's something I, I need to keep facilitating this. And the more I know, the better of a preservationist and archaeologist I can be. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the other girls here, she has two masters and she's going back for her PhD. Wow. So, yeah. Yeah. A few other things. I would recommend diversifying yourself as I did. Having archaeology, I strongly recommend you take a class in GIS and the preservation. It, it really has made finding a job easier and the process faster and has allowed, in my opinion, for a smoother transition. Get hands-on practical experience. Right. (laughs) Do an internship and do not expect to get paid for it. I worked for a year with not a dime. Mm -hmm. There is a lot of competition in this industry. If you can get a stipend, that's great, you know. That's fantastic. But you also need to be willing to make your own sacrifice to get to where you want to be. You know, complete a field school, volunteer with a related nonprofit, you know, work with some sort of historical society, whatever it may be, get out there and get moving. They're always looking for that. And that's kind of one of the things that I saw when I was applying. It's you need to have this kind of academic requirements, but you also need to have, you know, real life experience. And then I want to say the most important class I took was a cultural resource management class. And if you can take that in your undergrad, I strongly recommend it. It kind of helps break down the Section 106 process and the way we work here at a State Historic Preservation Office. It also educates you and allows you to understand what you can do with your preservation degrees. Mm -hmm. So that's, yeah, that's my recommendation. It's my advice. Yeah. My two cents. (laughs) Yeah. They just started offering a GIS course at Tulane like last year. And that is definitely one of those things that I wish they had when I was there. Like, uh, I would be all over that in a heartbeat. Absolutely. GIS, there are certificate programs that are a year. Mm-hmm. They're, I mean, they're also very expensive. Yeah. But, you know, GIS is so instrumental in what we do. It's really important to do it. And to be honest, you can just do GIS. And that's... Yeah. Where most of the money is, to be honest. Yeah. But you're not in the field. You're behind a computer. So, again, you need to weigh what do you want to do. Mm-hmm. I am a person, as you can tell from the archaeology, I like being in the field and I like being in the office. I don't want to do just one. I think it's important to do a little bit of both. You know, when you're just doing archaeology, when you're done digging, you've got the data analysis and then you're in the lab. So, for me, I really needed that that balance. I like to be active, so sitting behind a desk all the time is a little... Mm, Yeah, (laughs) yeah, I understand. I think, you know, I've been thinking about what I want to do next, too. When my husband finishes school next year, fingers crossed, about, like, I thought about going back and doing something else, and I'm like, do I really... But so, it's so much money, but then I'm like, but I I actually really enjoy going to school. I do, too. (laughs) What is wrong with me? (laughs) I really like learning things, and so I've been thinking about, you know, what my next step is going to be when he's when he's done and he gets all settled in his new fancy job, again, fingers crossed. <laughs> Absolutely. My <laughs> fingers I can are have, definitely crossed. I can have a little bit more flexibility with what I want to do. And I've definitely thought about going back to do something else, get well, another degree. And something for you to think about, because I know the state of Tennessee here, they will pay for one class a term if you go to a state school. Mm-hmm. So there are ways to get funding. You know, if you want to go for that PhD program, you know, you can get a fellowship. So there are things like that you have to do, apply for scholarships. And that in itself is like its own job. Yeah, it is. But, you know, and, and that was part of what I was saying about dedication and sacrifice. How bad do you want it? You mm-hmm. know, you have to want it more than everybody else. Um, and that's 
you know, those nights where I was just pulling my hair out and like so done with graduate school and like <laughs> frustrated crying, you know, I had to take that deep breath and say, well, this is really what you wanted. And there's a light at the end of the tunnel. You just got to get it done and you got to do it well and right. I graduated with a 4.0 honors on top of my class because it was so important for me to find every way to separate myself from every other applicant. And mm-hmm. I think that definitely did um, serve me well. Mm-hmm. It was a good choice. And um, it, I definitely have a thousand more gray hairs for it. But <laughs> but the tunnel has ended. I yeah. made it. The light is here. <laughs> so anyway. And would you say, you know, don't be afraid to be flexible as far as like looking for jobs in other places. Like don't be afraid to move if you need to. That is such a good you know, point. You know, I should have put that. You're probably going to have to move. Mm-hmm. Like that's just the way it is. That's if you are super stuck in where you're where you're living, if you really want to be there, you may have to just stay and work in a different field until that magical job comes up that fits for you. I knew that I was going to have to be flexible. I knew I was going to have to probably move. I looked and looked and looked for jobs in New York. I could not find one. Mm -hmm. And would I go back to New York? Yeah, maybe one day. But right now, you know, I just kind of trusted in the universe with this move. I'd I'd never even been to Tennessee. Mm -hmm. But, like, how could it be bad? It's got live music, barbecue, (laughs) archaeology, historic preservation. I'm going. Let's just go for it. Yeah. So I I totally agree. I think you need to be open-minded. You need to be flexible. And you, you should be afraid to take a chance only in a healthy way. You should be nervous, not afraid. You should be a little nervous. Because it's important to challenge yourself and to go out of your comfort zone. And that's kind of what I also do like about archaeology and historic preservation is it kind of forces you to push your own boundaries too. Mm-hmm. So, yes, that is such, I'm so glad you brought that up. I can't believe I forgot that one. No, Good, call. Okay. Good call. Good <laughs> call. I've talked to a lot of people. So yeah, no, I've, you are I've on picked this. up a few things. <laughs> you are on this. I think we're almost to the end here. How can our listeners get in touch with you if they have more questions about what you're doing? Oh, absolutely. I'm very reachable. Monday through Friday, I'm always in here. If you, if you leave me a message and I'm not here, that means I'm in the field. My office, if you're in the area, is located at the Clover Bottom Mansion, which is an antebellum plantation with a history of slavery in the Civil War. So you can always come here, set up a meeting with me, and we can tour the grounds. We actually um, have extant slave cabins here and additional outbuildings, which is pretty rare in Tennessee. So like I said, if you're in the area, look me up. Let's go take a tour. I, of course, can be reached at my office number, which is 615-770-1095, and my email, which is my name, Nina, N-I-N-A dot S-C-A-L-L at T-N dot com. Great. Well, I will also put all of your contact information in the show notes so people can find you if they need to. Yes. (laughs) All right. Well, I think that's all that I have for you today, Nina. Thank you so much for being a guest on the show. And thank you for having me. This was great. I really had a great time. Hey, everybody. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. Let us know what you think by leaving a review on iTunes. If you would like to get a direct link to our guest's information or just want to give us a shout, you can contact us by visiting our website at preservationdestination.com. There you can check out each show's notes and much more information about the podcast. If you prefer good old-fashioned social media, we are also on Instagram and Facebook as Preservation Destination. 
Feel free to give us a like and click the follow button to stay informed about upcoming episodes. Again, thank you for being with us, and we hope you'll join us again next time here on Preservation Destination.